Welcome back, folks. I've got another chapter for you from uh, We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong. This is chapter four. Putin sees money as a means, not an end. I think you'll agree this will be pretty insightful. According to Bill Browder, an American-born entrepreneur who made a lot of money in Russia before falling foul of the wrong people and losing a lot of it too, Putin's total net worth is around $200 billion, $156 billion, pounds, which makes him as rich as Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Bill Gates of Microsoft put together. Is Putin truly the world's richest man? The people who will know are not the kind of people who will talk to me. But this is a question I have asked all sorts, from Western intelligence analysts to Russian journalists. Perhaps the best answer I ever got was from a former tax policeman who was then working in a pretty senior role at Rosfin Monitoring, Russia's federal financial monitoring service. At first he looked pained at the usual question from a dumb foreigner, but then he burst out laughing. Listen, you don't understand. It's not the 1990s. Putin doesn't go looking for money. Money goes looking for him. He probably doesn't know how much and where it is. Why should he? He's just... He was clearly casting around for a suitable metaphor. Swimming in it, he concluded with a smile. Putin is undeniably rich and far richer than he admits. Ahead of the 2018 elections, he issued a statement of his assets, which said he had earned 38.5 million rubles, £458,000, over the previous six years from his salary, savings and pension, and had some £190,000 in the bank. He also owns a 75-square-metre flat in St. Petersburg, two Soviet-era vintage gas cars, and a little Lada Neva 4x4. His palaces, private jets and so forth can be hand-waved away as perks of the job rather than his own property, but he has, at the same time, been seen sporting a collection of high-end watches that has together been valued at half a million pounds. An old Georgian curse ran, May you live on your wages alone. It is hard to believe that this applies to Vladimir any more than to the rest of the Russian elite. They routinely turn out to have massive mansions, such as Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu's £14 million pagoda-themed estate and presidential sm- spokesman Dmitry Peskov's £5.5 million home. Chechen strongman Ramzan Kadyrov, with characteristic overkill, also has a private zoo with a tiger and an £840,000 Lamborghini Reventon. So is Putin little more than the embezzler-in-chief, the godfather of a state-sized mafia? This certainly seemed to be the message of the so-called Panama Papers leak in 2015, when millions of files from a Panamanian law firm that specialised in representing the obscenely wealthy were revealed. Among many other personal and corporate financial shenanigans, they appeared to show that Putin had stashed away as much as £1.5 billion in various opaque offshore companies and in the accounts of sundry of his cronies, including at least £80 million in the name of his close childhood friend, the cellist Sergei Roldugin. It would be tempting to see this as proof that Putin is hiding money away for a rainy day or a lavish retirement. 
once during the precarious 1990s when he was trying to maximise a shrinking salary in a time of massive opportunity and risk, this may have been his main motivation. He has been linked to a variety of questionable deals in St. Petersburg, such as the Exports for Food Agreement that was meant to feed the city, and yet which, according to city councillor Marina Salye, saw almost £100 million disappear, or else the £30 million construction budget that former police investigator Andrei Zukov said was spent on Spanish holiday villas for Putin and his friends. Neither case ever went to court, and Putin denies any wrongdoing. Even then, though, there seems to have been a collective and almost coincidental nature to much of which the offshore books enrichment that was going on, It wasn't only Putin involved, he was just one of a bunch of friends who were making money, lots of money, thanks to their political connections and the business opportunities they opened up, and this all snowballed. They built dachas, or country houses, on the eastern shore of Lake Komsomolskoy, north of St. Petersburg. It appears an idyllic spot, but more striking than the vistas are the stratospheric careers of the members of the so-called Azera Dacha Cooperative. In 2004, Yuri Kovalchuk became the chair of Bank Russia, in which the role the US Treasury described him as Putin's personal banker. In 2005, Vladimir Yukunin became head of Russian railways on a £10 million salary. His luxury mansion outside Moscow famously has not just an Olympic-sized swimming pool and a garage with space for 15 cars, but also a special room solely for fur coats. Nikolai Shamilov is a co-owner of Bank Russia. Sergei Fursenko became director general of one of the subsidiaries of the state gas corporation Gazprom in 2003 and later of the Gazprom-owned Zenit St. Petersburg Football Club. The list continues, but the common denominator is that all these men, who are at least multi-millionaires, if not billionaires, rose to high power, high-paying positions under Putin. The cooperative's common bank account is held in Bank Russia, which is proof to some that it is Putin's personal slush fund. However, the truth is more likely that it is a collective account into which many people can put money, and that Putin, should he want to, is simply one of those who can dip into it. It is telling that the best parallel seems to be the Obschak, the kitty Russian organized crime gangs used to keep, to fund new operations, to look after members who got sent to prison, and to otherwise keep the group happy and busy. In the early 1990s, when Putin was horse trading with St. Petersburg's gangsters on Mayor Sobchak's behalf, he may have learned a thing or two. He was certainly operating in an environment where corruption was the norm rather than the exception. I once asked a policeman what would have happened if he had not taken bribes, and he explained that it wasn't just that his family would have suffered. No one could live on a policeman's salary in the 1990s, but also that it would have caused trouble for him with his colleagues. As he said, if you don't take bribes and you stand out from the rest, you become a problem for them. It's safer just to do like everyone else. Nothing suggests that Putin had any intention of standing out from the rest in this respect. Of course, the shopkeeper being shaken down by a fire inspector or the driver pulled over by a policeman for speeding have to reach for their wallets. But the real problem for Russia, rather than this individual corruption, 
is the industrial scale profiteering at the top of the system that sucks the blood from the country's veins and the marrow from its bones. According to the Indem Foundation, one of the few remaining independent think tanks in Russia, corruption devours up to a third of its GDP. To put it another way, whatever the cost of Western sanctions since 2014, Russia's own political and business elites have cost the country up to six times as much. The way this corruption works is through favours, access, lucrative contracts, and the authorities turning a blind eye to flat-out embezzlement. The Kremlin doesn't pay people, it simply grants them opportunities that they can milk. In return, rather than handing over suitcases of cash, they invest in projects, donate to charities, grant stakes in businesses, and look after friends. This doesn't only apply to regular business people. Officials are also encouraged to take advantage of their positions, which back in Tsarist times was called kormlenye, or feeding, both to ensure their loyalty and also guarantee that if the government has an excuse, if it ever wants to get rid of them. If you're the person who gets to decide in whose closet to rummage, it is useful if everyone is hiding a skeleton. The same exchange of loyalty for opportunities to get rich even applies to the underworld. Back when he was deputy mayor in St. Petersburg, Putin's job was to act as a liaison, essentially to cut deals with whomever he had to to keep the city running and the local bigwigs happy. This included powerful crime gangs, especially the Tambovskaya group, an organization so formidable that its leader, Vladimir Kamarin, became known as the Night Governor. The implication was that by day, the mayor's office was in charge, but at night, St. Petersburg was Tambovskaya's. He managed to stay ahead of the law until 2007, when he was arrested and sentenced on a range of charges. His continued high-profile status had become a little too embarrassing for Putin. Companies run by the Tambovskaya gang were granted a range of contracts and perks in return for their cooperation, and this same model was applied throughout Russia when Putin became president, in effect offering organised crime a degree of freedom, so long as they did not directly challenge the state. In politics, business and crime, three worlds that admittedly do overlap to a depressing degree in Russia, Putin offered wealth in exchange for loyalty, just as the political entrepreneurs seek to predict and please him with geopolitical mischief abroad, the corrupt entrepreneurs in business shower the boss with gifts in the hope of winning and keeping his favour. When Putin wanted to build a lavish palace for himself in Cape Idokarpus, in the over-the-top blinged-out style so loved of the Russian new rich, complete with private theatre and three helicopter pads, he didn't pay for it himself. He didn't even do so out of the state budget. Instead, he demanded that a number of the wealthiest businessmen make voluntary donations to fund healthcare improvements. It was a request you couldn't refuse. According to a whistleblower who was involved in the scheme, about a third of the millions collected was diverted into offshore slush funds, with much being used to build the palace. The government denies that it's even an official residence, but this claim became harder to sustain once it was clear that it was garrisoned by Kremlin guards from the Federal Protection Service and maintained by the Presidential Property Management Directorate. After all, those people making fortunes of their own know that they are rich only while they have political power and Putin's goodwill, which also keeps them suitably anxious and vulnerable to the whims of the Kremlin. The Italian Renaissance politician and philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli 
once said that while gold by itself will not get you good soldiers, good soldiers will always get you gold. The corollary for Putin's Russia is that although money will not necessarily get you power, power will always get you money. Remember that Putin doesn't go looking for money, money goes looking for him. The irony is that these days when Putin has least need for money, people are most eager to give it to him. The Panama Papers revelations reflect that he accumulates money not so much against his will as much as without his working at it, and perhaps even to an extent without him knowing the details. In the 1990s, Putin obviously was looking for ways to make the most of his salary, but even then he seems to have been a man with an eye on the main chance, and it is hardly coincidental that the people with whom he forged connections, city officials, gangsters, even his fellow vacationers in the Azera Dacha Cooperative, could all be useful to him. Now that he has whatever he wants, all Russia is his piggy bank. It is clear that it is power, not money, that is his thing. His ever-growing wealth is more a byproduct of the corruption and kleptocracy that is at the heart of his system. His gaze is firmly fixed on governing Russia and building his historical legacy. He understands how the promise of wealth and the fear of losing it motivates those around him, but it isn't his drug of choice. Although some sentimental leftists in the West still cling to the notion that Russia somehow still embodies the egalitarian values of old Soviet ideology, Putin has presided over the transformation of Russia into a hybrid state that is half old-style crony oligarchy and half caricature of the most rampacious form of capitalism. The richest 10% of Russians own almost 90% of the country, more than in any other developed nation. Meanwhile, much of their profits and assets flow out of Russia. They may talk the talk of the new model Putinist nationalist, but they gleefully take advantage of the financial opportunities of globalization as they plunder the motherland. This may drive them, but it is probably not, or at least no longer, what motivates the boss. Let us, by all means, do everything we can to cleanse London and the other financial centres of the West of the dodgy Russian money that has enriched our bankers, driven up our property prices and distorted our politics. But we shouldn't assume that targeting Putin's money or his obshak is some sort of magic weapon. If anything, if he loses access to his funds abroad, he will have all the more reason to stay in power at home, while if the oligarchs, minigarchs and corrupt officials are faced with the choice of either bringing their money home where the state might take it or leaving it abroad where we definitely will take it or freeze it, then they will probably do the former. And if it's too late, they will simply become more dependent on the Kremlin for another juicy contract to help replenish their bank accounts. If we want to be able to influence Putin, we need to pay attention to what really drives him rather than money which is what we'll turn to next. That's chapter four, and these are, of course, the words of Mark Gagliotti. Something to note that this book was first published in 2019, and things have changed. But I think you'll understand, just by, uh, just by having heard that, that a lot of pieces have fallen into place. First of all, Mark mentions about cleansing London. We've seen with Boris Johnson and the Tory party, Lord Lebedev, who... Uh, <laughs> And the name says it all. I fear that uh, some of Putin's philosophy may have emigrated and infiltrated London. We see 
very similar things with donations to the Tory party. And I'm sure the same applies for America. Hunter Biden's laptop is now proving that similar tactics are used, granting contracts and slush funds and so on and so forth. I don't believe that what was described here was it may well have been pioneered to an extent by Putin, but I don't think it's limited to Russia, nor do I think that the corruption described is limited to Russia. I believe the same is happening in the UK. I believe we've just seen it with the uh, PPE contracts and the same is happening in the US. The only difference is now that the globalization aspect has changed. As we've seen with sanctions and the freezing of assets abroad, exactly as uh, Mark Aliotta has, has said, this will this will make the fifth column, the self-cleansing, as Putin described. So these guys will either come back to Russia, as they have been urged to by Putin, or they will cut ties and they will have to try and make their way on their own abroad, which will be no mean feat. I hope you enjoyed that. I might continue to another chapter, uh, which reads, Putin doesn't read philosophy and Russia is not Mordor. <laughs>